this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we uh, mispronounce French words. I know I do that, but you got to love it anyways. Um, this is a podcast where we explore thoughts and philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Hey, before we get going here, I just want to thank everyone who's supporting me on Patreon, all the patrons out there. If you guys have benefited from this podcast, please consider joining uh, my team over there on Patreon. You can find the link in the description. Uh, another way you can support this podcast is subscribing on YouTube. You can click the notification bell so you can always uh, be informed of new episodes. And then uh, a third way that would be really helpful is go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review and a comment. That would be huge. That'd be awesome. I'm really excited about today's guest. I have with me Dr. Luis Marcos. We're going to be talking about one of his new books, uh, From Plato to Christ. I asked him uh, for a copy. I asked him if he'd want to come talk about what his new book. And he goes... Oh, which one, which one are you talking about? Cause he's got so many out right now. Um, so I'm really excited to talk with him. Let's just pull him in. Uh, Dr. Marco, Marcos, Lou, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. Good way to start the summer. Yeah. So you've been really busy lately, huh? Everything. I mean, I, I, I normally I write about C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, but I'm on a sort of Greco-Roman kick. Yeah. So in like one year, I've got The Myth Made Fact, Reading Greek and Roman Mythology Through Christian Eyes. Mm -hmm. I've got another book called Ancient Voices, An Insider's Look at Classical Greece. And then a second one, An Insider's Look at Classical Rome. And sometime this month or next month, the Plato book's coming out. So I'm definitely in a Greco-Roman groove right now. And it's a place I love to be. All four of my grandparents were actually born in Greece Mm -hmm. and emigrated here about 1930. Uh, So I I still have relatives in Greece that I visited. It's been a while. I visited. <laughs> yeah, and as you told me off off air, uh, you're actually uh, a descendant of the Spartans. I am, and the, the amazing thing is, my, my my father's side comes from Sparta, and my grandfather. Greeks always name their son after their grandfather. That's kind of what, like the Russians do that too. Sure. Uh, and uh, his name was actually Leonidas or mm-hmm. Leonidas, is modern Greek, but Leonidas of the three hundred Spartans. Now I was born in America, but. Okay, my name is Louis A. Marcos, but if I had been born in, in Greece, my name would have been Leonidas Anastasio Marcos. Uh. So I think Louis A. Marcos is a little bit easier, but <laughs> it's a funny thing, Parker, because I, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a Spartan, but I think by nature I'm more an Athenian, right? Mm. But there is one aspect about me. The only way I can write all these books is because I'm a Spartan. I'll just write all night and keep going. And That's right. We're not worried about eating and all that. So I still have a little bit of the Spartan in me. Though I prefer Athens. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, you need that to, to power through all those books. Uh, I feel that. I feel that you're getting me all excited here. I, I wrestled uh, in high school and in college, and I'm doing jujitsu now. I got the Ooh. post-shower sweats going on. I just finished up uh, a jujitsu class, so you'll have to excuse me there. But when you start talking about Spartans and stuff, it gets me all riled up. They're tough. And, and remember, the Greeks invented wrestling. I'm, I'm speaking <laughs> like the guy from my big fat Greek wedding. I, I I can identify with every single thing in that movie except the Windex. I don't know where that came from, mm-hmm. but everything else in the in that movie I, I've seen growing okay. up. It's pretty funny. It's very, it's very accurate. That's <laughs> awesome. Well, so Dr. Marcos, um, y- you got this this ancient uh, theme going on, this ancient kick. Uh, how did that happen? Is that from your study of C.S. Lewis and then you kind of tracked back and you're reading what he was reading? Or why? Uh, why, why I, mean, I, right I always loved, loved the classics growing up. Odyssey was one of the earliest books I read. I probably read it in a simpler version, but mm-hmm. it's, my love has always been the Iliad, the Odyssey, always loved Greek mythology. Okay. And then a little bit later, like in high school, I'm going to start picking up the tragedies and things like that. And then moving there to Virgil's Aeneid, the Romans. Yep. 
Ahmed's Metamorphosis. I'm a big, huge fan of Dante, who pretty much synthesizes everything. Sure. And one of the reasons that I agree with C.S. Lewis so much is not only that, you know, I agree with him, but we're all coming out of the same stuff that we love. Yeah. And so, you know, when I'm reading Lewis, I'm also reflecting on all the things we share in common. And that's why I love it. When, when I teach in the fall, I'll teach the Chronicles of Narnia again. Yeah. And some people may say, well, that's so modern. Don't you love teaching the classics? You know, and I, and I am a very, you know, whatever traditional English professor. But if you teach the Chronicles of Narnia properly, Parker, yeah. the whole tradition's there. Yeah. And, and you can also include a little bit of Norse mythology as well. But that whole Greco-Roman legacy is there. So that's been my first love. When I was in graduate school, my focus were the Romantics and Victorians, and I still teach those, and I still love them. But the heartbed of everything is the classics, the Greco-Roman classics. And I call myself a Christian humanist, or more accurately, a humanist Christian, because I believe that what we need to do is take that Greco-Roman stream that comes out of Athens— and mingle it together with a Judeo-Christian stream that comes out of Jerusalem. I just finished my 30th year teaching at Houston Baptist University, and one of our mottos is to bring Athens and Jerusalem together. Mm -hmm. And that means, and this is behind, especially one of my first books was called From Achilles to Christ, Why Christians Should Read the Pagan Classics, that it's not only okay for uh, evangelical Christians like myself to read the pagan classics, we can actually learn from them. Mm. There's actually some goodness, truth, and wisdom that can help us grow. Now, luckily, we have the Bible as a touchstone or a measuring rod, a yardstick that we can judge things by. Mm. Uh, But that's why, like I said, my my latest book was uh, The Myth-Made Fact. What can Christians learn? How how can you read mythology almost devotionally Mm. so that it increases your faith? Yeah. And so, like I said, these, these books are just kind of coming out of my own mission and vision statement and my own spiritual growth too. what has helped me to grow in Christ. That's fantastic. So, so I've gained a, I'm with you on uh, the Odyssey. I think we we were forced to read that as kids. And uh, (laughs) there's, there's this one line, it might be the Odyssey, um, uh, but it might be the Iliad. I think it's, it's the Odyssey and uh, uh, the main character. I'm I'm drawing a blank here. Odysseus. Odysseus. Yeah. And so, so, um, uh, the goddess, man, I should have, I should have boned oh, up on Athena, this right. Athena, Athena. Athena uh, wants to make him look more appealing. So this woman will help him. And so yeah. she makes him look more heavily muscled. And I read that in my oh. closet uh, because, you know, I read that and I thought I want to be heavily muscled. That's my You're life. So my whole trajectory of life has been set because that one line, he was heavily muscled. I thought I want to, I want someone to describe me that way. It was awesome. That's enough reason. You know, Milo the wrestler, that was the mm. most famous wrestler of the ancient world. So you can call yourself Milo. But see, one of the reasons that I was attracted to Greek and Roman uh, mythology more than, say, Egyptian or Babylonian is just think about it in your mind. So many of the Egyptian gods have the, the head of a, you know, of a, of a vulture uh, or a, what do you call it, a jackal or something yeah. like that. They're, they're bestial. Whereas the Greeks and Romans, starting with the Greeks, when they imagine their gods, they imagine them. That, okay, first of all, one thing we need to understand is that most people today, if you say the word beauty, your first image is going to be a beautiful woman, like the Venus de Milo. But for the ancient Greeks, their idea of beauty was the Olympic athlete, the mm. perfectly toned and balanced body. Yeah. And their statues of Zeus and Apollo and whatnot were always done in imitation of the Olympics, which started in 776 BC. Uh, Homer probably put the Iliad and the Odyssey together in the late 8th century, 700, 710, whatever. So it is possible. Now, now uh, Homer is actually from what we call modern-day Turkey. Mm-hmm. But it's very possible that Homer could have visited uh, and, and been a witness of the Olympics, because the yeah. Olympics started uh, in the same century that the Iliad and the Odyssey were put together. And that ideal of balance and harmony uh, was what gave them more anthropomorphic gods. And and they're still they're still gods. They're still idols, but they're coming closer to an ideal. And I think that makes them higher pagans, as as Milton would have agreed as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so so then when I started reading Lewis, I gained uh, even more appreciation for classical education and uh, found out about the trivium and the quadrivium and, and. was so upset to hear that uh, to, to realize that when we say trivial, 
We're saying yeah. according to the trivial. Oh, let's not be so trivial. No, no, we, let's oh, be trivial. Let's, let's be, be trivial. trivial. That's, that's right. That's right. Yeah. No, yeah. I, mean, I spend. I do a lot of a lot of speaking at all, Parker. But the great majority of my speaking is for classical Christian schools, classical charter schools. I, actually, tomorrow I'm, we, we just in time because I'm driving to Frisco, Texas, because the Association of Classical Christian Scholars uh, Schools is coming together. And to show you how much I believe in this. I've been speaking for them for 15, 20 years. And when my kids were young, I always brought them with me because they're very family oriented. They would let me bring the kids. They would stay with me. And now my son just finished his fifth year teaching Latin at the Geneva School of Bernie, Texas. That's near San Antonio Classical Christian School. My daughter, Anastasia, just finished her third year teaching music at a classical charter school called Founders. It's in Louisville, which is right near Dallas, Texas. So it's kind of in the family, this this belief in this kind of education that we've lost. And Parker, I'll tell you something funny. If you ask me what is a classical Christian school, I will tell you a classical Christian school is what Jesuit schools used to be like when they were worthy of themselves, Hmm. but from a more Protestant point of view. But Protestants, evangelicals, Calvinists, right? We're learning a lot of what we're doing from the Catholics. They're the ones who invented the university. And yet, sadly, the Jesuits, in some ways, they've become almost the most theologically liberal of the Catholics. Hmm. And they've lost a lot of it. But God has a sense of humor. Now, a lot of Catholic schools are going back to their true classical Christian roots. To me, it's it's an irony, but it's a beautiful – it's almost the way – God used the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous. Right. And when I was a kid, I didn't know any Jew, Jews that were believers in Christ. Now I know hundreds of them. Hmm. Right? So God is bringing things back in the same way. We, we need to go back and reclaim hmm. this education by which we shaped, by which Europe was made by which we shaped our founding fathers that created this country. Uh, yeah. Both our founding fathers, you know, <laughs> and the founding fathers. Yeah. We have two groups of founding fathers in this country. What, wasn't the, the modern uh, Christian classical education, yeah. wasn't that started kind of by like an essay by Dorothy Sayers? Or, or It really was. Dorothy Sayers, who was good friends with C.S. Lewis, she was Anglican, just like C.S. Lewis was. And she gave that, and it, it kind of lay dormant. And then about 20 years later, uh, it was about the 60s or 70s, Along comes Doug Wilson, great mm-hmm. guy, and he wants to reclaim that. And okay, her her book is called uh, uh, Re- "Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning," and that's basically the title of his of his book as well. They're so close, I, I get it mixed up. <laughs> uh, and he started a school in I- Iowa, of all places. Now, this is why part part you don't look old enough to this, but the funny thing is that a lot of this revival of classical Christian education, and it's just a sort of classical conservative evangelicalism mm-hmm. was born out of where Doug Wilson still lives, a place called Moscow, Idaho. Right. Now, again, anybody that's, you know, you know, younger than 35 <laughs> years old doesn't, doesn't get the joke, right? Moscow <laughs> was the enemy. That was the center of the Soviet Union. Yeah. And all of a sudden a place called Moscow becomes the center of a sort of true conservative Christianity. Again, God has a sense of humor, yeah. and they're still doing it. I'll, I'll, I'll be seeing them in a couple of days, okay. uh, and that group has continued to grow, and it, it's a way of reclaiming education because you know the, the public schools, you know, so many of them have given over to a progressivist view and almost kind of brainwashing. It's not about teaching them the classics. It's not about instilling virtue. Mm-hmm. It's about giving them <laughs> values. Now, that may sound like the same thing, but it's not. Virtue yeah. is trying to shape young people in accordance with absolute standards, courage and, and, and self-control and wisdom and justice and all these things. Whereas values is sort of an ever-shifting, progressive thing, helping kids to come up with their own values. It's not about a standard that's higher than we are. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, if you asked me 20 years ago, I would have said, Classical Christian schools are extremely important. Now I say they're extremely, extremely, extremely important <laughs> as yeah. we're losing our tradition left and right. It's, it's really scary. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're not going to be able to continue this experiment in democracy sure. if we've given up on the very tradition, Judeo-Christian and Greco-Roman, Christian, but also secular, but secular in a Christian way, <laughs> yeah. out of which everything was, was made. And yeah. if we lose that, if we can't be morally self-regulating anymore— 
it will collapse and it could collapse rather quickly. <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, Os Guinness's point, right? The, the yes. golden triangle of freedom and you learn uh, you lose virtue because you lose yes. your faith and then you lose your freedom because you need more laws because you're not a virtuous people. And one of my friends, Eric Metaxas, picked up on this. Sure. Yeah. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, If You Can Keep It. Yeah. Uh, very much influenced by Oscar. In fact, that's where he learned it from. Uh, sure. And, and yeah, we, we do need to understand that these things go together. It's yeah. just like goodness, truth, and beauty go together. Mm-hmm. And what really concerns me, Parker, and you may have seen this, is lots of my fellow uh, evangelicals and just sort of conservative believers in general, they're okay with goodness and truth being standard. But when you say beauty, oh, no, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. beholder. What are you, uh, you know, you're old-fashioned. No, if you allow beauty to atrophy, goodness and truth will follow. This is actually what I'm going to be speaking about in a couple of days. Uh, right. in we, we need to preserve, because just like Plato showed us, he's Plato's the one who gave us the idea of the good, the true, and the beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it was picked up in the Middle Ages because it, it fit perfectly with Christianity. And what do they have in common? Goodness, truth, and beauty are all a kind of balance, a kind of harmony. It's a harmony that reflects the greater harmony. So goodness, truth, and beauty are not something we invent. They're something we discover. Mm -hmm. It's there in the very web and weave of our cosmos and, of course, the creator of that cosmos. And, you know, like I said, Plato is, is one of the most important people because he is that great pre-Christian that was trying to move past the shifting shadows of our world to focus on the forms, what he called the form. Now, he didn't have the Bible. He didn't understand that, as Christians do, that truth is ultimately a person. Mm-hmm. The one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that's the founding motto, by the way, of Houston Baptist University, where I teach. Mm-hmm. That, that is the, the center of that. So Plato didn't understand it was personal. But he understood that if there is a God, he must be a standard of these things and not like the gods of Greek mythology or sleeping around and killing each other, right. and deceiving each other or whatnot. Uh, that's why, you know, we think of it's not so much that he's censoring. OK, it's if it's censorship, it's like in the book of Acts when the people gather together all their spell books and burn them. They're not burning a copy of the Iliad and the Odyssey. They're literally burning books that are actually demonic spells to control people. That has got to be done away with because it's going to lead us astray. But it doesn't mean we have to get rid of the great literature itself. Yeah. Well, so speaking of great literature, I have uh, my grandma left me uh, Mortimer Adler's you know, great works of the Western oh, yeah, world. I, I, good, I, right? I love them. I love the, uh, the Syntopicon. I'm trying to read that every day. But uh, just recently, I decided to go through uh, Plato's dialogues. I got the oh, collection cool. here. And so oh, yeah. it, it worked up perfectly uh, with, with your work. And in my head, I have, you know, I got I got the works of Aristotle I want to go through as well. I got Aristotle and Plato. And they're friends, but, you know, uh, truth is greater still. And, and right. so I, I'm going back and forth. You you said in the book that Plato is uh, he, he's the greatest uh, philosopher. And uh, right. what makes what makes Plato greater than Aristotle? Why is why is Plato the, the greatest philosopher for you? He's the one that, first of all, coming out of Socrates, but it's always hard to know exactly what Socrates and what's right. Plato. But it's coming out of Socrates and then Plato's perfecting it is bringing together metaphysics and ethics. Mm-hmm. That's separating. Okay, the, the, the two have to go together. Philosophy needs to be seeking after the truth, but philosophy also needs to be how do you live a good, true, and beautiful life? Yeah. So he's bringing those together. And what he's doing is trying to find a philosophy that is not shifting, like, like, like the, the sophists, where morality and ethics change wildly from one polis to another, one city-state to another. Yeah. You've got Plato seeking after that which is truly true, right? And so he said he's he's making uh, – that's why you know atheist philosophy is – as far as I'm concerned, is, is, is an oxymoron, okay? Mm. If, if, I mean, if you're a complete atheist, then there are no standards out there mm. unless you consider natural selection to be a standard, and that's a pretty scary one if that's your standard for life, right? There, mm. there is no standard. So he, you have to be metaphysical. And so he's moving beyond and he's helping us to to move up the ladder towards greater and greater truth. Mm-hmm. Now, Aristotle is not the opposite of Plato, right? Okay. 
it's it, the easiest way to think about the difference is Aristotle still believes that there is an essential truth. But whereas Plato put it up there, what he called the forms or the ideas, Aristotle tended to put it inside. That's why if you talk about, you know, getting to the top or getting to the middle, it's almost the same thing. It's a belief. Now, the way Aristotle said it is that everything has its own telos, T-E-L-O-S. Telos, our word teleology, telos means end, but it means a purposeful end. So what is the tell? What is the, the the goal and purpose and essence of a human being as opposed to a horse or an angel or something like that? So Aristotle, yes, he does bring philosophy back to earth, but he is not just a pure pragmatist. He still believes that, that there are uh, truths that are that precede us, mm-hmm. but he is more uh, practical in the sense of, you know, he probably his greatest book for, for in terms of influence is the Nicomachean Ethics. Sure. I mean, that's where he gives us the idea of virtue is a golden mean. It's the middle point between the two extremes. Mm-hmm. So Aristotle is not as different from Plato as people like to say, you know, as, as if he were non-theistic or something. Now, it is true that in Aristotle, you know, a lot of times God doesn't seem to have much more to do than exist. Mm-hmm. They call God and the philosophers, okay, but he does believe in absolutes, right? And and just an example, you probably heard this before in a philosophy text, but but he he had what are called the four causes, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at the, the statue of the David and you ask, what's the cause of David? Well, there is the material cause, the marble that it was made out of, and there is the efficient cause, right? The actual carving of it, right? But there's more than that. See, uh, most modern philosophers want to stop with that. All they care about is the simple, mechanical, natural cause and effect. But he said there was also a formal cause. That was the essential form of the human body out of which the David comes. Mm-hmm. Right? And there was also the final <laughs> cause, the purpose. So the final cause of the David is to glorify man and to glorify God. Right. So so when we speak, uh, you know, one, one of the, the big debates at the core of all the stuff about homosexuality and transgenderism and, and certain radical feminism is they want us to believe that masculinity and femininity are just social constructs. Right. No, we, we are. We are male or female. It's not just our body that's masculine, but our soul is masculine and feminine. It says in the Bible, God made them. So in other words, when we say there are essential differences between men and women, the masculine and the feminine, we are appealing to the formal cause. There is an essential distinction. Now, to our essences, our right? final yeah. cause is similar. Our final cause is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That would be a good example of a final cause. So again, we, we have to be careful that we don't take Aristotle and somehow make him into someone who wants to cut us off from the, the transcendent world. Yeah. But Plato, you know, and Plato's just more fun to read. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, if you like cut and dry kind of stuff. Okay. But Plato, he will make these, you know, philosophical discussions, but he'll always embody them or incarnate them in a myth, mm-hmm. like the allegory of the cave. Allegory and myth are sort of interchangeable words for Plato. The allegory of the cave, the myth of Ur, all these different things. And it's ironic because Plato talks about kicking out the poets, but Plato is the greatest poet of all time. <laughs> he, he takes uh, these ideas and he brings them to life in these stories that we can never forget. Plato also gives us the form of the dialogue mm-hmm. where we're speaking back and forth and moving towards truth. And that movement, toward, I talk about this a lot in my book, that movement towards truth is a two-step process. First, we have to wipe away all the phony truth. So if, if we're looking for truth with a capital T, there it is, I can't get my hand. <laughs> there you go. The, the way you begin is by wiping away all the little T's, all the little relativistic truths that we come up with, right? But once you wipe the slate clean, then you start to seek after the true truth, the absolute form of the truth. Mm-hmm. Now, this is my argument that nobody knows for sure, but 
if you ask me what's the difference between Socrates and Plato, to me, Socrates's great contribution was the Socratic method, as we still call it, the question and answer that wipes away all the phony definitions. And any of you that have read the early dialogues, which seem to me almost pure Socrates, they almost always end with, oh, okay, I don't know what, let's stop. In other words, I can tell you what it's not, but I can't tell you what it is. Right. But as we move into Plato, what we call the middle dialogues, the, the Gorgias, the Symposium, the Phaedo, the Phaedrus, the Republic, especially the Timaeus, as we move into those mature ones, now Plato is moving beyond the Socratic, let's wipe away the, the chalkboard, yeah. and now let's start to write on it. Let's seek after what courage and justice really are. Yeah. And again, you need to understand that, you know, Plato defeated those sophists, the ones who basically told us everything is relative, morality is relative, and Plato dealt them such a darn good blow that they were laid low for a long time. And, right. and luckily, then you get the New Testament, you get John, and so they lay them low, and, and, and that's it. Now, there were always sophistical-minded persons, uh, but they didn't get the upper hand until we start coming into the Enlightenment and things like that. Uh, yeah. so Plato's very important. Well, so... So what what made me super sad was um, when I was reading uh, when I was reading Augustine and seeing who he's going back and forth with, uh, who the skeptics of his time were. They were the academicians from the academy, right. and I thought Plato must be rolling in his grave that yes. his ancestors, the, the the school that he founded, became the skeptics who Augustine had to debate against. It really is a shame, but we do have to make a distinction between what's called Neoplatonism mm -hmm. and Plato right now. We've got to be fair here, okay? Plato has a fairly low view of the body. He doesn't know, right? They don't have the book of Genesis sure. to tell them, okay? Uh, there still is a tendency in Plato to see the body as a prison house, but it's not as bad as the Neoplatonists that we're getting. The okay. Neoplatonists who influenced the Gnostic heretics who said Jesus was God, but he wasn't man because mm -hmm. deity couldn't take on flesh or it would literally become dirty, Right. And, and that's, you know, again, that, that's that's taking Plato to an extreme. And you're right. When you get to a point of skepticism, Plato is all about seeking after the truth, moving closer and closer to the ideal. And what's interesting for, for any of your listeners here who are more left brain than right brain, uh, for Plato, the very highest thing is philosophy. But the second highest thing is actually geometry. Why? Mm -hmm. Because if you're a, a Pythagoras, a geometer, your interest is not in that scratchy little you know, a pencil drawing of, of, a, of a triangle, right? You're dealing with the form of the triangle, right. the perfect triangle that you can't see, right? So yeah. this is what we're moving towards. There's, a, there's an abstraction here, but he always grounds it because of his wonderful myths and his dialogues. And he wants us to become better, fuller people. Yeah. Right? So, so yes, part of it is Plato, but you're right. It, it's unfair to have this, cynical skeptical idea or this stoic ideal that cuts itself off from life that is not plato he's a full-blooded figure he yeah. even went to sicily to try to make a philosopher king out of the tyrant's bad son dionysius his name was and it failed fell yeah. terrible just as just as seneca failed to turn nero into a philosopher king they tried right uh but they failed <laughs> the great erasmus was hoping that he would make Charles V or Henry VIII into a philosopher king, but he never quite was able to do what he wanted. <laughs> well, Aristotle may have done it in in a in a, a bad way with Alexander. You know, he, yeah. he conquered the whole world. I, yeah. I don't know if he was a philosopher king or well, not. But this is what's interesting. It, it, he conquered the world, but what he did, uh, uh, Alexander, is he spread Hellenism throughout the world. Oh yeah, that's why so, yeah, get Koine yeah, from that. Yeah, the, the Koine, all that sort of stuff. And so it's kind of a, a mixed bag. But hmm. once he took over, he was fairly enlightened. Now, who knows what would have happened if he lived until he was 60. He was like, <laughs> right. but the uh, but he he found a way to bring in Persia. And so rather than just leveling Persia to the ground, at one point they did. He wanted his revenge. Uh, but, <laughs> he, you know, he, he, he you know, there's a famous moment where he got a lot of his Macedonian Greeks to marry Persian wives. Hmm. And a lot of them didn't want to do that. But he was trying to create something that would unify yeah. and, and remember it was you know th th that unification eventually gave way to rome 
which is when Christ was born, right? Mm -hmm. And and remember the, uh, the dream of the giant, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the giant, the book of Daniel, right? The head of gold is Babylon. Mm -hmm. The breast of silver is Persia. Then the bronze is Greece, by which we've been Alexander the Great and his successors. And then the, the legs of bronze, the, the legs of iron are the Romans, right? But each one of those is necessary as we're slow, because the, the Persians had a unifying idea as well, but Alexander expanded it because he had the ideas of Aristotle and the full Hellenistic learning. You know, if it wasn't for Aristotle, for Alexander, we might have lost a lot of this learning. Because huh. remember, he laid, he didn't build it, point. but he laid the foundation for Alexandria, where the great library of Alexandria was built, yeah. and where you know most of this stuff was kept. And by the way, the library of Alexandria was half a library; the other half was a museum with hmm. artifacts. So it's okay. kind of one of the first museums and libraries that collected both to preserve the past. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, that's something going back to Socrates, Plato, Aristotle being carried down that way. Yeah. Well, so in in this in um, in writing this book, you're, you're encouraging us to, um, to, to read the classics, to read Plato, to, to, uh, read the pagans and, and to even grow spiritually in, in doing that. Uh, I thought maybe you could help draw that theme out by comparing, uh, as you do in the book, uh, the Timaeus and Genesis and showing that, you know, how, can, can you help us, uh, eat the meat yeah. and fit the bones from Plato there? This is really amazing. A lot of people don't realize this, that, through much of the Middle Ages, Plato was lost, by which I mean he was lost to the West. Yep. In, in Byzantium, Constantinople, Istanbul today, it was still alive and well. Okay, But in the Latin West, as opposed to the Greek East, Plato, not only Greek as a language was almost lost in the West. Mm. It came back because when the Ottoman Turks sacked Constantinople, a lot of the Greek intellectuals fled and brought the Renaissance uh, to, to Western Europe again. So... The amazing thing is, through much of the Middle Ages, starting with Arist starting with Augustine, uh, the only thing they had was a Latin version of the Timaeus. Yeah. Now, to me, this is amazing. As a Christian, it's like, of not even the Republic. I mean, I love the Republic, but the the of all the books that Plato wrote, the one that comes closest to Christian truth is the Timaeus. And if you ever, everybody's seen that famous image called the School of Athens by. Uh, by uh, by Raphael, and in the middle are Plato and Aristotle, and Aristotle's holding a book. It says Ethics, the Nicomachean Ethics, but Plato's holding the Timaeus. That was his book, mm -hmm. and the Timaeus is an origin story. By the way, it also partly talks about Atlantis. But in the creation story, we have a God who seems to predate the Earth. Now we need to understand that the Bible is the only, only is the only ancient book that says in the beginning God. Right. Every ancient mythology, including the modern myth of, of Darwin, every myth says in the beginning is stuff. In the beginning is matter, and out of the matter comes the gods. That's in Hesiod, that's in Ovid, that's in, in Egyptian mythology, Indian mythology, Norse mythology, wherever you go. In the beginning, matter is already there. Now the Greeks had a word for it that came directly into our language. That word is chaos. Chaos means undifferentiated matter, right? Yeah. Somehow or other, one of those you know Darwinian tall tales, somehow or other, out of the chaos comes the gods. Now, the gods live on and on and on, right? So they're they're uh they're they're immortal. But the Greek gods, the gods of mythology are not eternal. They're not outside of time and space. Right. Anybody that loves Lord of the Rings, the elves are immortal, but they're not eternal. The mm -hmm. elves live on and on and on, but their life is tied to the life of the earth. And when the earth is gone, what he calls Arda, when that's gone, they'll be gone as well. Mm -hmm. So big difference here. Yeah. But all of a sudden in Plato, we've got this creator, this demiurge, who he actually calls father at one point, mm -hmm. who is creating everything. Again, this completely goes against every other mythology, only the Bible. Now, he doesn't say ex nihilo, out of nothing, but it's about as close as you're going to get anywhere else. And this father creates this creation. He shapes it, and then it blows my mind every time I read it. It says that the creator, the demiurge, he created, or, or there was a sort of perfect being, and he created the world sort of in imitation of that perfect being. 
which is unbelievable. You know, what, what does it say in the Bible that uh, uh, um, through him all things were made, all things came into being? John, John chapter one, yeah. that Christ was the model, he was the logos, he was the word, and everything's being said. And he also says, blow your mind, that the creator created time. Mm-hmm. So he understands what we today would call mm-hmm. the space-time continuum. Now, the funny thing about this is up until 100 years ago, the atheists are still saying, no, no, the earth's always been here, steady state. Right? Right. But all of a sudden we have this thing called the Big Bang that suggests that there was a beginning, that there was a time when there was no nothing, no no time and no space. In other words, not just no matter, no void, nothing. Yeah. And then it can't. So this is unbelievable. Um, so uh, other than the Bible, the Timaeus is the only thing I see, uh, and uh, of course, anything influenced by the Bible, but the Bible and the Timaeus are the only ancient books that are dealing, you know, it, it took it took Augustine to explain to us what it means that God lives outside of time and space and that time is a creation. But Plato's already said this, and Augustine's certainly influenced by it. Um, yeah. Again, if you go carefully to the city of God, whenever I was looking for this, whenever Augustine quotes Plato, it's only the Timaeus. Huh. He's getting something from Virgil or whatever. But when he mentions Plato, it's the Timaeus, because that's all he's got left. And and, and oh, yeah. Augustine's Greek is very, very sketchy at best. That's what I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> right? he, he didn't like Greek. Like what? Uh, yeah. You know, it's kind of crazy, right? Yeah. The, uh, so 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 and, and then there's another thing in the Timaeus that's amazing. It says that when God created the world and created angelic beings, and he created us, he created the animals, that he he did not do it out of envy. That the, the one true God, even quite sad that way, but he's treating them as, as a single God, is not envious. That's kind of an amazing thing. That's certainly not mythology. And anybody that knows about mythology knows how envious the gods are. Right. right? Jealous and envious and keeping that. That's why uh, Prometheus had to steal the fire for man because uh, Jupiter or Zeus was jealously keeping it from us. Yeah. Right? And they're <laughs> fighting with us and all these. No. Okay. Now, God is not envious. God is jealous, but that's because we are the bride of Christ and God is a jealous God. But, you know, if, if, if you're a married man and your wife is cheating on you and you couldn't care less, then you obviously don't really love your wife. Okay. Right. And like you said, hopefully you won't kill her like Othello. Okay. <laughs> there is such a thing as a righteous jealousy. Let's put it that way. So, yeah. uh, cause that, that still gets a lot of people mad when God speaks of himself as a jealous God in the old Testament and whatnot, but right. no, uh, anyway, Jesus is too. He's zealous for the temple. So Jesus is a, is a jealous God too, jealous yeah. for his bride. So let, yeah. let's not kind of separate the Old and New Testament. Um, yeah. So he's got all these things. He also, if you read Timaeus carefully, he does not treat the body as inherently evil. Hmm. That's what starts to happen in Neoplatonism and Gnosticism. But here, the, the, the gods have a body, but it's so finely made that they live on and on and on, where where we, we're not so perfectly made. But there's no sense that the body is evil. Right? We're, we're trying to escape the body in, in, in sense to move, you know, spiritually beyond being fooled by our, our you know, our five senses and things like that. Right. It, it's it's an amazing book, and it's well worth reading. It's difficult at points, uh, yeah. but it and it, and it also <laughs> speaks about be careful, or we will make animals out of ourselves, right? Now, Christians, we, we don't believe in reincarnation. It's incompatible. But sometimes we can make ourselves in to a thing like animals or a, dog, yeah. or a lion or something like that. We, we, we can't be that. There's, there's often a spiritual and even psychological truth that we can learn from Plato. And what we can learn from Plato, <laughs> my original title was From Plato to Christ, Ascending the Rising Path. That was my original subtitle. I like it. That's what it's about. It's about moving up that path towards, Plato called it, the beatific vision. Now, beatific doesn't mean beautiful. It means blessed. Yeah. Uh, the Beatitudes. Beatitudes. Blessed, right? But it's still, it's beautiful as well. But the beatific vision. And this is something that the medievals adopted, especially somebody like Aquinas. But yeah. what's wonderful is the beatific vision is not communing with impersonal forms, it is now worshiping directly the triune God. Hmm. But Timaeus is amazing. You know, that's enough. Get the book and just read the chapter of Timaeus because, yeah. you know, and, and I've got a lot of quotes in there. I'm not making it up. It's quoted yeah. right there. It's directly. Um, and, and, uh, and then what I've done too is luckily with Plato, kind of like the Bible, um, somebody early on, this guy named Stephanus, went in and put in chapters and verses. Hmm. Otherwise, we can never find anything. Right. So, I know I'm not the only person that does this, but 
whenever I quote Plato, I put that number. So whatever translation you have, you can find it. Yeah. You, you have to work because the translations differ, but you'll be able to find just, just like, thank God that in the, in the early middle ages, they put the chapters and verses in the Bible. Or right. never be able to find anything, right? So right. now it doesn't make a difference what translation. If I give you chapter and verse, book, chapter, verse, you can find it. Yeah. Uh, so we're lucky we have that for Plato and Aristotle, most of the ancient stuff. Yeah. So uh, where does this fit in the uh, the early, middle, late dialogue scheme? Like where, where where's Timaeus? Is it a later one? It's kind of in between the Republic and the laws. The okay. later ones are the laws. And in the later ones, we don't have that dialogue. Also, we don't have Socrates leading the dialogue. We just have a voice. Uh, so that may be a little bit less dramatic, uh, but they're a little more practical. But Timaeus is sort of towards the end of his middle period. Maybe we might call it a, a high point of his middle period okay. as okay. he's dealing. And, and if you want to understand the, the Atlantis myth, there's, there's one thing called the Critias that kind of breaks off. And then the Timaeus, you have to read them together. Okay. Uh, to get the full story of Atlanta, which, which you know Plato pretty much makes up. I argue that I think it's a memory of Minoan Crete uh, that was destroyed by the, the famous volcano called Thera. Um, but but it doesn't make a difference. He's using it as an object, that sort of Tower of Babel, right? Yeah. Of what happens when we give way to pride, uh, and and it, and it brings a fall. It brings a giant wave, which was probably a tsunami, probably set off by a, a, a volcano. That destroyed it, the great wave. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, how do we go about? You, you, you've constantly reminded us that Plato did not have scripture, but he's getting pretty close. Well, I guess first of all, what do we make of that? How how is it that Plato came so close? Do you think he was just? Are these truths that can be gained by reason? Do you think God was divinely illumining Plato to make way for the gospel to the Greeks? What, what, do, what do you make of, so. of Plato? There's two parts to it. One, one is that very vital theological distinction between general revelation and special revelation. Right? Special revelation is the way God speaks directly, as he did to the Jews, to the prophets, Old and New Testament, Christ. But general revelation is the way God speaks to all people through creation, that's Romans 1, the law, that's written our conscience, that's Romans 2, our reason, our, our, I, would, I, would, I would argue our imagination. C.S. Lewis called it the good dreams of the pagans. So Plato does have access to general revelation by way of his reason. But I also believe in, in, in a way that's hard to define that maybe God is using Plato to prepare the Greco-Roman world for his coming. Because, again, I don't know about you, Parker, but it always bothers me, this idea. Are you saying that before Christ came, that God ignored 99% of humanity and only talked to the Jews? Well, only to the Jews did he speak directly, but he didn't ignore the rest of us. He's working yeah. in and through us to get things ready. And, and yeah. it's just amazing when these things happen. I mean, it, it's all – you call it coincidence. It's what you call providential history. Yeah. Right? There was this thing called the Persian War, and miraculously, with the help of Leonidas, my namesake, uh, with, with the help of him, uh, the, 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 the Persians were stopped. And that led to Athens' golden age, right? And that gave us, you know, Herodotus and Thucydides and, and, and Sophocles and Aeschylus and Euripides and whatnot. And you know, that's why my first book was From Achilles to Christ, Why Christians Read the Pagan Classics. That's the the uh, the, uh, the uh, Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, and the Greek tragedies. Mm -hmm. Then my myth-made fact book is the myth, and now this is Plato because Plato needs his own book. That's right. So much richness there, and so much influence on people like Augustine or, or Dante, all the way up to C.S. Lewis. Uh, that he and also Parker. Another reason I wrote this book. Okay, you you probably remember this kind of theologically liberal Christians, the game that they've been playing for the last 100 years, 200 years, is whenever there's something in the Bible they don't like, they blame it on St. Paul. Well, you know, that's Paul. Yeah. I only believe in the words in red. Those yeah. people never realize that the person who speaks the most about hell and damnation and devils is actually Jesus. Right. Paul is the one who's always talking about grace. So, anyway, <laughs> but, but what I'm finding is, whatever you want to call them, neo-Orthodox people, when there's anything that they don't like in Christianity, they want to be progressive but still be Christians, they want to blame it on Plato. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a very subtle kind of thing. 
Uh, and and uh, I'll never forget, I won't, I won't give names, but uh, about 15 years ago, I gave a speech about goodness, truth, and beauty that was very traditional about masculine and femininity and stuff like that. When I, and of course, I quoted Plato many times. And after I left the stage, the guy interviewed me, very, very nasty, says, thank you, Dr. Marcos, for admitting to us that your ideas are all underwritten by Plato. Unbelievable. Now, luckily, that went over the head of most people because that, that's, but, but it's just like, oh, and, and I've seen this a lot in the academy. Yeah. Uh, thank God for Plato. Right? He, and, and remember, okay, God is an incarnational God. He didn't just randomly come into human history, right? It's not, not like the game. Did you play that game when you were a kid where you spin the globe and put your finger on it? And right. say, oh, that's where I'm going to live, or that's where I'm going to go right. on my vacation. Usually in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Somewhere yeah. but <laughs> the, it wasn't random, okay? He right. came during the longest reign of peace the Western world has known, what we call the Pax Romana, established by Caesar Augustus. He came at a time of unity. He came when there was a unified language, not Latin yet, that's 200 years later, Koine Greek, as you mentioned before, coming out of uh, Alexander. And the, the early Christians, now obviously they did not use names like Zeus because that was too corrupt, but they used words like Logos, Theos, the word for God. They are using the categories of the Greek language, much of which we owe to Plato, just mm. like we owe much of our own language and the way it works and its richness to Shakespeare. And the Spanish people owe that to Cervantes and, and the modern Germans owe it very much to Martin Luther's translation of the, of the Bible into German. I mean, he's somebody that's giving a language in which Christian doctrine can be explained. Because Hebrew is a much more poetic language. It's like Old English or something. Beautiful language for prophecy. But to bring about the, the, the kind of theology we get, say, in, in the letters of Paul, you know, th there's a reason why it's Greek. And that, and that Greekness influences it, right? Um, and and uh, so we need to understand that it, it wasn't random. God is, is presenting himself through this way. And a lot of the early church had no problem uh, like if you go in the catacombs and look at the original art, you'll see a lot of pictures of Jesus as the good shepherd. Yeah. All of them are patterned directly after images of Apollo holding a sheep over his neck. That doesn't mean they're mixing religion or doing what's called secretism. Right. Right? They're, they're just, it's a language to understand. And God yeah. ordained that. that. That doesn't mean that. Now, of course, I love, like I said, I just wrote a book called The Myth Made Fact. I'm hoping that a Chinese Christian will read that book and be moved by it, and my Plato book, and say, let me write a book called From Confucius to Christ. Yeah. And let's see what aspects of Confucius God used to prepare the, 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 you know, the Confucian or Buddhist world. Yeah. Right? And, and I, we, we need more of that because certainly he did. He didn't just ignore people, right? But yeah. there is something special about the Greco-Roman first because it's our tradition and we're living in the West. But number two, that is specifically through the vehicle through which God came. Yeah. So it does have a specialist. That doesn't mean it's superior and everything else is inferior, but it means a fuller understanding of this is going to help us grasp things. So there's yeah. an importance there. I, I think that that point, uh, I used to be much more um, what business does Jerusalem have with Athens? But, but I, I love C.S. Lewis and uh, Miracle is probably my favorite book. I, I read it at least at least once a year. Right. And his idea of the, the corn king that, you know, Jesus is the God is the corn king. He's he's not yeah. what they mean, of course. Right. Yeah. But he is the God of corn. Yes. He, right. he is the, the corn king in that sense. And that's really helped me see this as. Uh, just uh, a different view, and I think a more full view of general revelation and God. Uh, right. You know, we have we have biblical theology in Scripture, but a, a kind of biblical theology, progressive revelation of general right. revelation as well. Right. There, there is, like I said, you're right. We have to be careful because if you say that, oh, oh, you mean it's being? No, we're not saying it's being made up. God is revealing Himself. He did right. reveal Himself more in Christ mm -hmm. than He did in the Old Testament. And, right. And if we listen to Jesus, it's good for you that I go away so the Holy Spirit can come, right? Because mm -hmm. you and I have something that the greatest saints of the Old Testament lacked. Right. We have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's pretty clear in the, in the Old Testament that the Spirit came down to give Samson strength or David to play the harp, and then he left, right? Because yeah. Christ hadn't come yet. So in some sense, in a very weird way, we are closer to Christ 
than the disciples who were living with him when he was in incarnate form, right? Because right. The, the Holy Spirit is actually inside of us, which is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so, uh, uh, by the way, uh, if you want to throw a little popular culture in here, this will give you, you'll get a kick out of this, right? Now, we call him the corn king, but you need to understand that when British people say corn, they mean wheat, okay? Remember, there was no corn in the ancient world until uh, Columbus and all that, right? So. Okay. It's still today. The Corn Laws in the 19th century were regulating the trade of wheat. Okay, uh -huh. it, it is the wheat. But popular culture, when uh, Stephen King wrote The Children of the Corn, he was really making a pun. It's, it's kind of a joke because this is taking place in America where it actually is corn, maize. That's what the British call right. corn, maize. Uh, corn. So it's kind of ironic. And, and you know, in, in a way, the, the, the Children of the Corn is a terrifying horror film but in a weird way points towards Christ because it understands that ancient understanding of the need for blood sacrifice and things like that and cycles mm -hmm. of life, death, and rebirth. So Stephen King is a weird one, right? He's not a Christian, but right. he understands the importance of spirituality and ritual and all those things that it's written so deep inside of us. Yeah. And again, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah who fulfilled all of the Old Testament law and prophets, but he's also the savior of the world who fulfilled all the highest yearnings of the pagan people. Whether that means the ritual of the corn king or it means what Plato was yearning for. In the Republic, book uh, two, um, they're trying to get Socrates uh, to prove that it's better to be a just man than an unjust man. Yeah. Right. And so uh, Glaucon, who he, he's what we this, he, it's what we call playing devil's advocate. OK, Glaucon agrees with Plato or Socrates, but he wants to force him to make a, an argument. So he says, OK, let's take a perfectly just unjust man. He's perfectly unjust and so deceitful that he's convinced everybody else that he's a perfectly just man and he gets everything. Then there is a man who is perfectly just. But what will happen to him? He will be accused of this. He will be beaten. He will be whipped. He will be hung and killed. Now, it's possible Plato had in mind Socrates, but this yeah. reads like a prophecy of Christ, right? And C.S. Lewis says it in a book he wrote called uh, Reflections on the Psalms, mm -hmm. that if, G if Plato could look now and see the crucifixion, he would say, yeah, that, that's what I had in mind. I couldn't have guessed it. I couldn't have made it up, but... But yeah, I, I recognize that this is the Magi. I don't think they had any idea what they were going to find a little baby in a manger. But when they got there, they recognized that this is where the star and their general revelation wisdom was leading them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I love that. Uh, you're you're a good uh, evangelical Christian. Um, yeah. Is Plato in, in paradise with, with the Lord right now? <laughs> now, Dante has Plato as what he calls a virtuous pagan. Uh -huh. okay? You know, the, the thing is, none of us really know how God deals with the people that died before Christ. Mm -hmm. I, I like the idea that C.S. Lewis suggests. C.S. Lewis never taught this as doctrine. I would never teach it as doctrine. It's a what if. Lewis would call it a supposal, right? Okay. What if for the person that never really had a chance to accept Christ, either because they live BC or because they live in the middle of a Muslim nation or a Buddhist nation, a Hindu nation, whatever. But guess what, Parker? There are plenty of those people right here in my town of Houston, right? Hmm. Parker, if you grew up in a Christian home that was absolutely 100% hypocritical, so that every single uh, uh, association you had with Christ was completely judgmental in the negative sense and evil. I think it would be psychologically impossible for you to accept Christ hmm. unless the Holy Spirit zapped you to a point of view that just ripped out the whole path. And he doesn't generally do that. Right. Okay? So what I'm saying is, you know, the, the guy in the middle of Africa could be in the middle of Houston. Okay. Where, where do you live, Parker? Where are you? <clears throat> I'm in, uh, I'm in Illinois. Yeah. Just, just Illinois. We, we lived on, on campus at Ted's for a while, but yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. So, you know, so the, uh, I, you know, I spoke about three times for the, uh, for the uh, Cornerstone Festival. Have you ever been to that? Cornerstone Festival. Cornerstone Festival. It's out in the middle of nowhere. Makeup, Macomb, somewhere near there in okay. Illinois. It's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> crazy stuff. Anyway, yeah. Chicago, too. Anyway, <laughs> the, um, 
Uh, now I forgot what I was saying. Uh, Parker, you have to help oh, me. Yeah, yeah. Where, where were we? You, you got me all lost up yeah. there. Yeah, I lost it. Where were we? Okay, uh, okay. So what if, okay, the person that just never dead. really had a chance. Yeah. What if at the moment of their death, Christ appeared to them? Mm -hmm. And if everything in their life was leading up to that moment, they will accept Christ. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not universal salvation. The point is they need to recognize Christ. But it is problematic because that does sound like post-mortem salvation. And no Christians, Catholic or Protestant, you know, pretty much when you die, all bets are off. Yeah. But Lewis reminds us that the moment of our death is an eternal moment. The moment we die, we are stepping into eternity. And that moment of our death is an eternal moment that contains every other moment and perhaps every choice in our life. Maybe in that eternal moment, Christ comes to himself, comes to us and reveals himself so that, again, if everything in us was leading, we'll move up. We don't know. That is what's going on at the end of the last battle, Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah. This character named Emmeth who is a Kalorman, we might think of him as a Muslim, whatever you want to think of him, person who's never had a chance, who was taught to believe that actually Aslan is evil, a demonic god, right? Yes, and, yeah. But at that moment, good task, at the moment he comes before <clears throat> Aslan, he reckoned. Now, if, if Aslan had said to Tash, come my son, and I, I'm sorry, if he said to Emmeth, come my son, and I will lead you to the Tash part of heaven, that would be universal salvation. But what he says is, no, I take to me, if you if your desire had not been for me, you would not have sought so hard and so long. So, again, we don't know. That's what the great divorce is about uh, in many ways. Uh, and notice in the great divorce, though, everybody but one actually willingly goes back to hell. Right. It's only one person. OK, yeah. um, so maybe I, I like to think that uh, I would like to think that if Christ appeared to him, uh, you know, that, that Plato would recognize everything in his life was moving to that culmination or consummation moment yeah but we, we, we can't know and that doesn't stop our our, our evangelism <laughs> if we go out we spread the gospel we take it to the whole world right. um but again the, the point is we don't know we don't know exactly how god's grace works yeah. for those who have had unless you're one of those people that believes in double predestination and they don't have to worry about it but most <laughs> people do, okay most christians don't um most christians believe that again we are God has given us free will. That, that, that doesn't mean we choose anything we want, but that means we are volitional creatures mm -hmm. who choose. That, that is how God made us. Uh, Plato said, if, 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 if reason does not include free will, then we're not rational creatures. And if we're not rational creatures, we weren't made in God's image. Uh, to be made in God's image means consciousness, conscience, reason, and choice. Mm -hmm. Our will, that is the center of our heart. When we say, I accept Christ into my heart, I'm not saying I accept Christ emotionally. I say I'm accepting Christ into the center of my will. Mm -hmm. That's for, for people, English speaking people, <clears throat> a heart is what we mean. When we mean the center of the will, we say the heart. Yeah. There are other ancient people who would have said your kidneys, they <laughs> yeah. would have said your Liver. bowels, they yeah. would have said your throat. Different cultures put the center of being at different places. We say the heart. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't just mean pure emotion, used yeah. that way. It okay. The will. Okay. So, Doctor Marcos, uh, a final question here: Should this is like the whole purpose you wrote your book? But but should Christians uh, should Christians be Platonists? Uh, should Platonists be Christian? What, what, good what's, the, what's the relationship? I, I think there's something we need to learn from Plato. Right? Mm -hmm. We need to learn that we've just forgotten this. Okay, that the cause has to be greater than the effect. Right. What, what, what is that phrase? Water never rises above its source. I think it's mm -hmm. how it's put. Right. That the origin of things has to be greater than this. Right. That behind our ideas, behind like masculinity and femininity or goodness and truth and beauty, there are real things behind them. Right. Now, do you know what Augustine did? He took Plato's forms and he put them in the mind of God. I think he's right. I think that's the right. way to go. Yeah, that's it. They're, they're there, right? Now, that doesn't mean you or I immediately have a corner on that, right? We might yeah. be wrong. We're seeking after that truth, but it is there. Uh, and again, now we, we don't want to go to the extreme and say that our world is somehow unreal, right? Sure. But even Lewis calls our world a shadowlands because heaven is so real 
then in comparison, it's like we're living in a shadow. But it's not evil. Okay, we're, we're still Christians. God created and called it very good. The better example I would give you, analogy, is when Jesus said, unless you hate your mother and father, you can't follow me. Obviously, we can't take that literally because the commandment says, love thy father, honor thy father and thy mother. Okay, yeah. But our love of Christ should be so pure that in relation to that, it would almost be like a hatred of family. But right? when you look at it, that's sort of what we call hyperbole, which is a very, very uh, Semitic thing, Semitic hyperbole. Um, and uh, so we, we need to learn it from that. We need to learn that, you know, especially if you're a Baptist like me, where we, we, we want to, okay, I'm saved and that's it. And, and yes, I am saved, because I'm, but, but there's this thing called sanctification. And there is this need to grow towards the full, be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Mm -hmm. And Plato can help us as we grow spiritually, as we're moving. His idea that our souls are tripartite, that there is an appetitive part, appetite, appetitive, the belly, I want, I want, that there is the rational part, the head, and they're always at war with each other. But in the middle is the chest, the spirited part mm. that needs to come to the defense of the head or the head will be knocked out by the belly. Yeah. Lewis carries this discussion on in a book he wrote called uh, The Abolition of Man. Yeah, um, in this, out, yeah. out of the Silent Planet, that, that helped me understand Plato's oh, yeah. uh, tripartite so well. Yes, yes. I read that and it was like, that's it. I get it now. Yeah. Yes, because he's got he's got the the Hrasa, who are like the spirited chest, they're Homeric warriors. Yeah. There are the Fifiltrigi, who are the, the craftsmen, right? They're the, the belly, they're the workers. Yeah. And then there are the swords, which are tall and abstract, right? And they all work together in harmony. And yeah. Plato's definition of justice is when everybody does their calling. That's justice, when all do what they're supposed to do. Justice is not treating everybody exactly the same. True. Justice and fairness are not the same thing. This this new crazy idea of equity, equality of outcome, that everybody should be exactly the same, uh, is is not only counter, counter to Plato, it's counter to Christianity, mm -hmm. to the idea that we have individual callings and we're part of the body of Christ, yeah. right? The eye does not say, I'm not a hand, or the hand, I'm not an eye, and all of those things. So we, we, we have roles within the body of Christ, and those are good. There is a natural hierarchy that doesn't need to crush, but actually needs to affirm. Yeah. And we get that in Plato. And that's one of the reasons a lot of modern Christians don't like Plato, because they don't like the idea of hierarchy. Uh, but that that's very much in, in the Bible, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, it's hard for us as Americans to get that. Yeah. And the so I, I work for a ah. campus ministry called Athletes in Action. And a lot of the guys I work Ooh. with um, – they, they're coming to me from Jordan Peterson and they're learning about hierarchies. They're learning about, oh, there's some more stuff that in the Bible, but I don't know if Peterson fully believes that. Let me go to someone who does believe that. And so I've, I've really reaped a lot of benefits from that. And it's coming back around kind of the 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 push away from a lot of the the social left trajectory. And man, I'm, I'm grateful to be there to so they don't go crazy off right yes. either, right? Like we want, hey, come yes. to this, come to scripture. Let's we've been here the whole time. Let's do this. Yes, right. Yeah, let's come back to to this position that, that understands and that and that can learn and grow. And say, look, let me show you how things have changed. When I was eighteen or whatever, you would call a man a sexist if he treated men and women exactly the same. That to me is a sexist. A sexist is somebody who doesn't recognize that there are distinctions between masculine and feminine and just wants to treat everybody the same. Today, you're a sexist if you don't treat men and women exactly the same. Okay, now here, let me tell you what a real sexist is. A sexist is someone who says men and women are different. But if I'm a male sexist, I think all the masculine things are good and normative and right and positive, and all the feminine things are bad and negative. If I am a female feminist, I will say all feminine things are good and wise. Female and sexist. Yeah. You had a Freudian slip there. Female oh. sexist. Yeah. The female sexist, are not the female feminist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, but, I mean, but, that, but that is. I mean, right. Yeah. Right. But you're right. The feminine. I mean, do, yeah. do you know what G.K. Chesterton said 100 years ago? His definition of a feminist was someone who dislikes the chief feminine characteristics. Hmm. <laughs> okay? So there is it. Now, in the middle, are the crazy people who think men and women are exactly the same. I don't even know how to talk to you if you really have come to believe that, that we're totally exactly the same. That's just yeah. kind of crazy. Ask any any family that's raised a, a son and a daughter, right? Yeah. Um, but part of the problem is, Parker, that we, 
again, we, we can't deal with difference right now. Part of it, I understand, right? In the old Jim Crow South, they used the phrase separate but equal, but they didn't really mean that, right? Right. Okay. But there is a way in which you can speak of men and women as being separate but equal, okay, of, of equal value. Equality should, should only mean two things. We all have equal value and worth and dignity in the eyes of the Lord. Yeah. And thank God we're in America. We should all have equal legal rights, yeah. right? But other than that, any other equality outside of that, C.S. Lewis says, just crushes everything. It creates a lowest common denominator world where everything is gray and ugly and, and there's no beauty. There's no wonder. There's no growth. We just level everything. Yeah. And we do need to be careful of that because it's yeah. a temptation. And it's an American temptation, right? Because we don't know the difference between equality, the way our founding fathers meant it, and what today is called egalitarianism that wants to make everybody the same. Yeah. Uh, and it's... It's it's scary. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dr. Marcos, this has been this has been fascinating. It's been really interesting. Uh, so, for the people who who are interested in this book, he he also goes through. So it's from it's from Plato to Christ, but it's also from Plato through you know Christian Platonists all the way right. up to C.S. Lewis through Gregory of Nyssa, Nazianzus, and Palamas. Um, all all the greats are in there. It's it's a really really yeah. fantastic book. Really appreciate it. Um, so I, I reckon we've only touched on a tiny bit here, but oh, yeah, you know, can in, in such an hour. Yeah. The, the, um, the best way is just go to Amazon.com and type in Lewis Marcos. You'll see my name right there with a K. It's Greek. Lewis Marcos. And it'll, you'll find my uh, Amazon author page. And that's where all my stuff is. Uh, and I, I think 22 books there. So they're all they're all different. A lot of stuff on C.S. Lewis, too, of course, and Tolkien. Yeah. But also, if you go to YouTube, and type in the same thing, Lewis Marcos, you'll find my YouTube channel where I've got lots of speeches and stuff that might interest you on Lewis and other things like that. Uh, but that's, that's the best. I, I, don't, I don't really have a web page that's up and running these days. Just That's Amazon all right. Those, those two, that's, that's where everyone goes anyway. So, yeah, yeah, just go to Amazon. It's got all my stuff. Right. And, and, or YouTube, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, Lou, this has been fantastic, man. I appreciate all your time. There's so much stuff that you've that you've written on, you've covered, that you, you have to come back on. We can talk yeah, more well, later with yeah, yeah, yeah. Lewis. That'd be fantastic. Great stuff. Well, thanks for having me on and blessings for the summer. Yeah, awesome. So um, that's going to have to do it, folks. Uh, this has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.